This podcast is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Uh, welcome back to uh, now the uh, second chapter of our discussion with James uh, on uh, general M&A issues uh, that people should be aware of from a commercial uh, perspective. And um, in this chapter, we'll be uh, speaking to James about uh, the process from the uh, uh, from the drafting and negotiation uh, of the sale agreement all the way through to completion. So we're now at a point where we've done our due diligence. Uh, what happens next and um, when do we get stuck into uh, what you guys love doing? And that's uh, the detail of a sale agreement. Yeah, my favourite part. Um, it's pretty common to start preparing the sale agreement um, and even some of the other key transaction documents um, at the same time as due diligence is going on. The sale agreement is certainly the most significant and often the most heavily negotiated document in an M&A deal. And it's customarily prepared by the buyer's lawyer. Um, but that's not a rule and it's not uncommon for the seller's lawyer to prepare it too. Um, it's generally a pretty long and detailed document. It will cover everything from purchase price mechanics to adjustments uh, to conditions precedent, things that have to happen um, before completion can occur, restraints, uh, warranties and indemnities, termination, confidentiality, um, tax matters. Um, there was probably a bit of jargon in that, sorry, but, uh, but they're, they're the types of things that a sale agreement uh, will typically deal with. Yeah, well, well that's, um, there's jargon everywhere in this area and we'll talk about some of those things. Um, so, I, I mean, I notice James, uh, with, you know, with, with clients, particularly if they're the seller, um, probably the part of the sale agreement that they fixate on the most is uh, the bit that tells them how much they're going to get paid and when and, and in what form. So um, can we talk a little bit about what would be some of the common um, purchase price structures that you would see uh, in a deal? Yeah, so for a share sale, which we probably do more often than asset sales, the, the most common structure we see is uh, a completion payment to be paid by the buyer at completion and then uh, what's called a completion accounts adjustment method, which really involves uh, a working capital adjustment as well as a net debt adjustment. And the way it works is that you have a headline sale price that is calculated um, based on the target business um, being cash free and debt free and based on a normal level of working capital. And then following completion, um, an adjustment is made to take account of the actual amount of the cash and the debt and the working capital at completion um, to arrive at the final purchase price. So that might be um, higher or it might be lower than the headline amount that you started with. Um, but that is probably um, the completion accounts mechanism that I just described is the most common one that we see in Australia. Um, there is another mechanism less commonly used in Australia, which is, um, as I understand, it, pretty common in Europe and other parts of the world. And that's referred to as a lockbox mechanism, which um, in many ways is simpler than the completion accounts mechanism. You basically agree upfront a, a purchase price amount based on a recent set of accounts, um, ideally or often audited accounts, 
um, and there is no adjustment other than um, for what's called leakage, um, a, a, another another bit of jargon there, which is really um, uh, certain uh, transactions or payments that are prohibited between when the um, lockbox date was agreed and completion. So it, it tries to avoid um, the financial situation of the target changing too much from when the price has been agreed. And they're the main two uh, purchase price adjustment mechanisms that we see on these sorts sure. of deals in share sales. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree that uh, when it comes to, well, either of those um, sale mechanisms, but especially the completion accounts adjustment mechanism that um, clients and us as lawyers will very much be leaning on the expertise of uh, either the uh, the company's um, in-house finance function, if it has one, or uh, its external accountant uh, or auditor, or in many cases, many cases, uh, uh, both. So uh, that's when an accountant can very much expect themselves to be uh, to be in the picture. Um, and the other thing that we hear about a lot and we see in a lot of agreements is uh, earnouts. So uh, there's lots of tax around earnouts and we'll be talking about that next time. But can we can we just um, summarise what earnouts are about and what, what that expression means? Yeah, uh, so... Earnouts are really a way of bridging the gap between buyer and seller expectations around price, particularly where the buyer is concerned about the future performance of the business that they're buying. Um, and the, the way it works is that specific performance targets are set, usually or often tied to EBITDA. Um, and if those targets are hit um, in the period following completion, whether it's a, a one or a two year period, um, then the seller will be entitled to a further payment. Um, and that payment is calculated based on the actual performance, uh, often capped at an agreed amount as well. Um, so yeah, that, that's what earnouts are. Um, we're certainly seeing more earnouts in recent times, which probably makes sense given all of the uncertainty in the world. Um, since since COVID and, and all of the other things that are happening. So yeah, they're definitely flavor of the month at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think they're generally perceived as a way of a buyer hedging their risk a little bit um, by making their future payments subject to um, how the business um, performs after there's uh, after it's changed hands. But, um, but a little like you say, uh, as good as earnouts are, especially for buyers, they can also be uh, the ripe territory for uh, disagreements and disputes as well. Um, and um, on that topic, sadly, it probably segues to the next discussion. But um, I think one thing we should talk about a little bit is uh, warranties and indemnities. And, and uh, oftentimes, uh, when you look at a, a sale agreement, um, most of the pages seem to be taken up uh, with warranties and indemnities. So can we um, explain to the people listening what warranties and indemnities are generally all about and what some of the things they need to be looking out for are? Yeah. So warranties in the context of an M&A transaction are really just a fancy word for statements of fact by the seller about the company or business that they're selling. For example, it, it might be, uh, the warranty might be there are no current claims in respect of the business or the seller owns all of the intellectual property relating to the business. 
and these a long list of of these types of statements are typically set out in a warranty schedule um, in a sale agreement and the purpose of that is to reassure the buyer about what they are buying um, to the extent that any of these warranties turn out to be incorrect at the time they were given then the buyer may be able to make a claim for loss against the seller so that's that's kind of the the 101 on warranties in an M&A context. It's probably also worth mentioning, Frank, that it's uh, customary to have a um, sometimes very long list of qualifications and limitations on um, these warranties in a sale agreement. Things like the seller won't be liable if the claim isn't made um, before an agreed expiry date, which is often 12 or 18 or 24 months after completion. Uh, the seller isn't liable if the claim is below an agreed de minimis threshold uh, or the seller isn't liable if it's above um, a maximum cap, which is often tied to the purchase price, 50% or 100% of the purchase price. Um, and importantly, um, the seller isn't liable if um, the particular um, matter that relates to the warranty has been disclosed to the buyer, for example, in the data room or um, in a disclosure letter to be given at completion. So you have a long suite of warranties, but they are qualified and limited by um, other things in the sale agreement. So there's a bit there's a bit to warranties. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you very much so. Um, and um, and uh, the other side of the coin, in a way, is um, indemnities. So um, what are those all about? Yeah, so indemnities are, um, again, they're about risk mitigation, but they're a little bit different um, in that um, you, you, in basic terms, they're typically reserved for specific risks that are identified by the buyer during due diligence. Um, and, you know, it might be that um, a a particular um, ongoing litigation is discovered or a tax issue or an underpayments issue. And um, as a buyer, because of the um, severity of that issue, then you require you will require in the sale agreement a specific indemnity that shifts the risk of that particular issue from the buyer to the seller. And importantly, uh, these specific indemnities are typically, um, and again, there's no rules on this, but customarily in negotiating these sorts of transactions, these indemnities won't be subject to the same suite of limitations and qualifications that we were just talking about in relation to warranties. Um, so there might be two or three specific indemnities in, in an agreement where the effect of them is basically that because of their significance, um, the, sh the risk is shifted from the buyer to the seller um, for that particular risk. Excellent. So, I mean, the short point of all of that, as far as I'm um, gathering, James, is that uh, warranties and indemnities are basically a risk management uh, mechanism that operates through uh, the share sale agreement. Um, if you're uh, the seller, um, then you have to be... Um, comfortable with the warranties that you're um, given and giving and that they are accurate. Um, and if you're the buyer, uh, you want to manage risk by um, making those warranties robust and, and making those indemnities uh, as tight as possible. But um, 
But we see, you know, in, in the practical world, uh, you know, sometimes uh, these things don't always end up, um, you know, doesn't always end up going smoothly. And, and there are um, disputes about these things, I wouldn't say occasionally, they may very well be regularly. Um, what are some uh, practical ways that this can be managed? Yeah, so obviously ensuring that you have the right advice, whether that's as a buyer around your due diligence, making sure that you're covering off all the key risks, or as a seller, making sure that you've got the benefit of the um, customary qualifications and limitations in a sale agreement. There are various reasons why um, buyers and sellers may wish to um, consider what's called warranty and indemnity insurance, which is uh, basically a, a form of insurance provided by um, specific insurers that covers these same risks that we're talking about in warranties and indemnities. Um, it was um, until recently prohibitively expensive um, for deals kind of under um, 100 mil or, or even 50 mil, but we um, are gradually seeing it become more affordable even for smaller deals um, to the point where um, it should at least be considered on a range of transactions as an option, um, depending on uh, the type of um, premium that can be offered for that particular deal. Excellent. Um now let's let's get to the exciting bit, and that's uh, signing and, and completion. Um, and uh, you know, there's always a a, a a sense of excitement in the air when we when we reach that stage and uh, anticipation. And um, you know maybe the um, maybe the clients already picked out their Porsche or uh, or, or their new yacht or um, you know their new holiday house, and um, you know, can't wait to sort of get their hands on that big pot of money. But um, but let's well let's talk about you know, signing and, and completion and and importantly what's the difference between the two because I think that's something that uh, took took me a while to understand so maybe you can help make that a little simpler for us yeah it's always a concern when the client's gone out and bought their Porsche um, on signing um, and prior to completion that always that always makes you a little bit nervous but uh, it's an important distinction and a weird one for those that uh, aren't familiar with it. Um, so you spent, you know, you've gone through your due diligence, you've negotiated the sale agreement, it's finally agreed, you've got through all those warranties and indemnities, et cetera. Um, and yeah, the sale agreement's signed. But unfortunately, um, for, for most deals, that's not the end of it. Uh, there'll typically be a process to work through uh, to get to what's called completion or uh, as the Americans call it, closing. Um, and typically it involves the satisfaction of certain conditions precedent from the sale agreement. And that might be um, third party or, or regulatory approvals that need to be provided. Uh, it might be certain other documents being agreed and signed like an employment agreement uh, or an assignment of IP. Um, and all of those things need to happen. Um, and both parties need to be satisfied that they've happened before completion can occur. Um, so signing is really just that, signing of the sale agreement. Completion is where all the magic happens. That's where the buyer hands over their money, the seller hands over the business or the shares, and um, people can start popping champagne and buying Porsches and um, 
doing whatever else they um, would like to do to celebrate. Yeah, and we take we can take the client out for a, for, for a big lunch. Um, but exactly, um, excellent. So just two more things to to wrap up. Um, uh, one is about timing, and one is about um, the sort of team you need for a deal. But um, I mean, in your experience, a typical you know M and A deal, uh, assuming it goes smoothly. What sort of time frame is reasonable, and what should people expect? Uh, lo longer than they would expect is the short answer. Um, from starting on a term sheet to completion, you're probably looking at anywhere between two and six months, depending on um, things like regulatory approvals and third-party approvals. But uh, of course, there are exceptions either side of that, but that's what we customarily say. We've had a recent experience, James, of um getting instructions in mid-May for a 30 June completion um, and uh, yeah it's often a time to uh, you know try and temper or hose down the client's expectation about just how quickly these things um, can be achieved not necessarily because of um, all of the things we've talked about uh, but um, importantly because of these some some of these third-party issues and um, especially the inevitable curveballs uh, that will arise when you go through due diligence and negotiating the terms of the um, sale agreement and so on and so forth. And another, uh, and my final question, um, so just around um, process. I mean, if, if you're a, a person who's thinking about buying a business or if you're a person who's thinking about selling a business, um, what sort of team do you need to get around you? Uh, who's involved and, and what sort of advisors um, normally play a part in the deal? Yeah, that's a really important question, getting the right team around you. Uh, in, in addition to lawyers, um, at a minimum, you should have uh, tax and financial advisors who can assist with financial due diligence and advise on the accounting and tax aspects of the deal. Uh, sometimes corporate advisors or, or business brokers will be involved, um, not only to source potential uh, buyers of a business, but to provide strategic input on pricing and structure and to manage deal timetables. Uh, and sometimes, uh, particularly for due diligence, buyers might look to engage uh, industry or subject matter experts to drill down into uh, areas that are particularly technical, complex or, or high risk. So uh, that, that's probably the, the core team. And uh, yeah, if you get that, team together early, um, set it up well, get the right people, then I think you're, you're pretty well placed to uh, end up with a good result. Excellent, James. Uh, well, thank you so much um, for sharing all of that information uh, with us. Um, I don't know that we necessarily um, demystified every single little bit of um, jargon. We would need hours to do that, but uh, we've really hit on some um, some important points uh, and a couple of the most important things for me uh, is in doing an M&A deal, um, expect the unexpected and uh, you know get ahead of those issues that might blow out timetables because um, you or the client won't be involved or won't be uh, controlling the timing of those, like the third party consents, uh, like the regulatory consents. Um, you know, understand the process, uh, understand the structure, you know, understand where the pain points in the whole process will be, um, and um, keep your clients calm and in control and. Um, uh, fully aware of uh, what are reasonable timeframes. So um, thanks very much for that, James. We've 
really appreciated uh, you uh, sharing your expertise uh, and your thoughts with us on this podcast. And uh, in the, the second bit of this, um, we'll be uh, picking up on some of the points that we've talked about um, in, in this presentation and uh, looking at uh, some specific tax issues um, arising uh, from a typical m a process, uh, both in the, the pre uh, deal stage during the deal stage when some of those risks start to um, start to arise uh, and then post completion. Uh, thank you to our listeners for uh, uh, listening to today's podcast. We um, we uh, trust that the information uh, today has been useful and uh, as always please uh, get in touch with anybody in the team uh, if there's any aspect uh, that you would like to uh, talk about further. Uh, you can find all of our details on our website, which is www.hallandwilcox.com.au, or you can connect with Hall and Wilcox or the tax team through LinkedIn. And if you enjoyed today's episode and you no doubt have, then we would be most obliged if you could rate, review, and follow our podcasts wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. Talk to you next time.